Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang Tamang Sanghang Namasami. Earlier today, when um, someone came to visit the the monastery, um, came to to chat after the meal, um, he had a, a number of, of questions. Uh, one of them. Uh, he was recounting how he'd heard this uh, Russian proverb that um, whenever there is love, there is jealousy. So I thought that was an interesting proverb. <laughs> and uh, so it, it brought up a, a conversation and uh, reflections around the um, the nature of the way um, we uh live in community, the way we, we uh, relate to other people, and um, what uh, you know, what the Buddha's teaching points to in that. And these are uh, a useful area to, to consider, to look at. So talking with this fellow today, um, the, the first thing I, I said was, well, it depends what you mean by love because um, in the Buddhist in the Buddhist teachings in the Buddhist tradition there are certainly different kinds of ways that we uh, we can love each other and so that uh, there's certain uh, certain kinds of, of love that will bring um, painfulness and uh, negativity or bring jealousy and conflict and and pain of various kinds but also the other kinds of love, the other kinds of ways that we can connect as human beings in a positive way that that don't bring that, that are ways of relating that uh, uh, that support liberation, support a uh, a genuine quality of, of freedom, and don't lead towards negativity and stress, conflict uh, within us. Uh, in this uh, this respect, the, the um, one of the teachings that that's most relevant uh, is a, a sutta in the uh, middle length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya, called the Piyajatika Sutta, which means born from those who are dear. And it starts off with a, an incident where the the Buddha is uh, sitting uh, meditating in a in some kind of um, public park or some kind of uh, uh, public area. And this uh, fellow comes by who, uh, as I recall, had lost the, the, um, uh, lost his child through the, you know, the child's death. And so he was uh, unhappy and miserable and uh, got into conversation with the Buddha and, the, and uh, was describing the cause of his unhappiness, that his child had died and therefore he was so sad and miserable. And the Buddha made the um, apparently matter-of-fact comment that 
unhappiness, uh, sorrow, suffering uh, is born from those who are dear to us. And this fellow says, oh, what rubbish. No, those who are dear to us, they're the source of happiness. They are the source of of joy in our lives. You're talking rubbish. Uh, Even though the fact he was... (laughs) He'd been unhappy about the loss of his own child. Uh, he didn't. Something in him didn't make the connection, and so he took uh, exception to what the Buddha said and took umbrage and uh, went off. And as the story goes, nearby he came across some other people who were also in the park, and they were they were playing dice or, or gambling somehow together. And he said, "I just met this stupid monk," and he said that. That sorrow and unhappiness, um, suffering comes from those that are dear to us, and and I think that's wrong. I think it's joy and and uh, and delight. That's what comes from those who are dear. And they said, Yeah, right. Of course, you're right. Everyone knows that. Any fool knows that uh, our loved ones make us happy. And so uh, this fellow, agreeing with the gamblers and not agreeing with the Buddha, uh, went off uh, on his way. So then the story of this encounter, these encounters can circulate through um, you know, the, the uh, city of, of uh, Savati and um, eventually the, these stories reach the palace and there's this dialogue leads to between King Pasenadi and Queen Malika and um, they get into a, a discussion about this and so uh, the king says to to the queen, "I can't, you know, I can't believe that the Buddha would have said that uh, sorrow and, and uh, unhappiness, suffering, is born from those who are dear to us. Everybody knows that that our dear ones are the great source of happiness in our life." Then uh, the queen says, "Well, if the blessed one said it, it must be true." Uh, and he's in this uh, typical domestic dispute. <laughs> King Pasenadi King says, away with you, Malika. Uh, no matter what the Blessed One says, you always say, it must be, if he says it, it must be true. You know, off with you, away with you, get, you know, get out of my sight. <laughs> so there was a bit of domestic conflict there uh, and disagreement. Uh, but anyway, she says, well, have it your own way, Your Majesty, but um, uh, I, uh, I still hold that if the, the Blessed One, if the Buddha says that this is the case, then, then truly it must be the case. And maybe next time we have the chance to see him, we can ask this question of him ourselves. And so sure enough, the, when the, there's the, the next time there's a, a visit of the, the Buddha to see them, or they, they, uh, they meet up, the, the king puts this question to the Buddha and said, you know, I'm sure you must have been misquoted. You couldn't have really said that. Um, because you know, it's just common sense. Everyone knows that happiness comes from those who are dear to us. And the Buddha said, no, great king, you're wrong. Uh, I did say that. That's exactly what I said. And um, and so you, know, you are incorrect and, and Queen Malikar is right. She's uh, she's correct in in her understanding and, she's, uh, and uh, she agrees with, with what I say. So the king is a bit miffed at that. And then the, the Buddha said, well, let me ask you a question, great king, as he does in these encounters. And he says, great king, are you fond of Princess Vajiri, uh, uh, one of the, the daughters of uh, Queen Malika and King Pasenadi? Well, yeah, of course, she's the, she's the dearest thing to me. Princess Vajiri is, uh, 
is the, the dearest thing. She's my uh, most beloved of children. So then the Buddha says, well, uh, great king, how would you feel if something, uh, something unpleasant, some unpleasant change came about in Princess Vajiri, like if she got sick or she got injured or, or somebody attacked her or you know, those kind of things? How would you feel if some kind of change came about in her that she was injured or, or ill or, or disabled somehow? Well, I'd be very upset, I'd be really unhappy, I'd be miserable. Yeah, I'd be most distressed. And then, the, then he said, well, what, what about uh, Queen Malika? Something unpleasant happened to her. How would you feel? Oh, I'd be very upset. I'd be most distressed. I'd be very, uh, uh, very uh, pained. It would be difficult to bear. What about your, uh, your chief minister? What about your, uh, your other members of your court? What about the, uh, the city of Savati, what about the, the kingdom of, of, uh, of Magadha? Uh, of, uh, of, um, the, uh, the, you know, the kingdom of, of um, yeah, of Magadha, yeah. The, um, how would you feel? And he goes through this long sequence of different, uh, different things that the king was attached to, from the family, from the royal court, and his town, and the, the country, and so forth. And, and one by one, you know, the king answers in the same way. Yes, if some kind of change, some sort of uh, alteration, some kind of negative uh, event happened, yeah, I'd be miserable, I'd, I'd be upset, I'd be, I'd be distressed. So uh, you get the feeling that somewhere along the line, the king starts to get the point. <laughs> and then... Uh, the Rabbuddha keeps repeating the refrain, this is why I said, great king, unhappiness, suffering is born from those that are dear, those that are dear to us. Uh, that's, uh, that's why, because through that quality of, of attachment, of identification. There's another uh, well-known incident where uh, Visaka, who uh, also lived in the city of Savati, she was the great and one of the great lay disciples, lay supporters of the Buddha, and she was also a uh, a great mother. She had, uh, according to legend, she had 20 children, 20 daughters, 20 sons, and they each had 20 children of their own. So she was supposed to have been grandmother to 400 grandchildren. So um, lots of birthdays to remember. <laughs> uh, whether this is precise historical fact is... Uh, uh, I can't say for sure, but certainly there's the, the stories go she had a, a big family and lots of children and grandchildren. Um, so anyway, one day she came to the the, uh, the Jetavanna where the, the Buddha uh, was living, and uh, in the middle of the day, and she had her, her hair was wet and her clothing was wet from the uh, the, the ceremonies of a, of a funeral, and so the Buddha said uh, to her, Visaka, why are you coming here in the middle of the day like this? With your your hair wet and your clothes wet and, and uh, you know you're looking very distressed and upset, unhappy. She said, oh well, I've just come from the funeral of my favorite grandchild. My my granddaughter just passed away. She just died, and she's such a young child, just a, a few years old. And now she's died, so I was very unhappy. So I wanted to come here and uh, and to see you because of uh, of my my sorrow, the feeling of grief. So then the Buddha asked her, so how is it, uh, Visaka? How is it for you? Um, are you fond of having uh, so many children and grandchildren? Oh yes, my children, my grandchildren, they're the great source of happiness in my life. And he said, well, Visaka, 
would you like to have as many children and grandchildren as there are people here in the city of Savati? Oh, yes, well, I've already got lots, you know, I've got you know, dozens of, of children and grandchildren already, but I'd love to have as many as, uh, as people there are in, in Savati. So then the Buddha said to her, well, Visaka, how many people die every day in the city of Savati? Oh, well, at least yeah, at least ten people every day is you know, uh, without uh, without fail. At least you know, ten people day. Well, if not ten, you know, nine. If not nine, eight uh, people, seven people, six people, half a dozen people die at least every day in, in Savati. Um, and then so on down through the list. At least uh, she said, well, at least you know, the very least is at least one person every day who dies in, in Savati. So then the Buddha said to her, so, uh, Visaka, if at least uh, somebody dies every day in Savati, would you ever be without your hair and your clothing wet from being at the funeral if you had that many children and grandchildren? So she was a lot quicker on the uptake than King Pasenadi. <laughs> she immediately said, uh, uh, enough of having so many children and grandchildren. Yeah, the... Uh, uh, the immediate, the meaning was immediately clear to her. And she could, she could pick up on that. Yeah, she could see. Yeah, that's that's right. If I had that many children, I'd always be at somebody's funeral. And I'd always be feeling the sense of grief and pain. And then the the, the Buddha points out in in these teachings. So, said if you have, if you have a hundred dear ones, you have a hundred pains. You have ninety dear ones, ninety pains. Eighty, seventy, sixty, fifty, forty. Forty dear ones, forty pains. Ten dear ones, ten pains. Five dear ones, five pains. Four, three, two, one. If one dear one, one pain. No dear ones, no pains. You know, suffering is born from those that are dear to us. So then we might think, well, this is really miserable. <laughs> so we're supposed to have no friends. <laughs> we're supposed to just cut ourselves off or freeze our heart solid to just make ourselves uh, you know, alone and... Uh, uh, like a, a rock, like an, an island, just uh, divided off from, from everybody else to, to freeze the heart, to be uncaring, unfeeling. But that, that's not what the, the Buddha is, is recommending, because you know, elsewhere in the teachings you have this very direct recommendation to, for the Buddha for us to have loving kindness for all beings. Even as a mother protects with her, her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So if we consider this, uh, we can, it's, they seem to be uh, contradictory teachings, don't they? On the one hand, he's saying that suffering comes from the, the uh, attaching to those that are dear to us. And on the other hand, he seems to be saying that we should have uh, a sense of love and affection for all beings, similar to or on the level with a mother loving her only child. So it's good to uh, to consider this. I find this a very helpful area to reflect upon, particularly in learning to to live with uh, with other people in our families, in our our community, in the monastery, in our relationships, in the workplace, in the world itself. Because what these these teachings point to is that uh, there are different kinds of ways that we can have affection for each other, that we can bind ourselves to others. So on the one hand, this, the kind of, of loving that uh, the Buddha is talking about in these, these teachings, about uh, um, suffering coming from those that we love, 
The, the word that's used is pia, transliter- transliterated into English as p-i-y-a, pia, like pia jatika, pia dhamma, pia jatika, is born from those that are dear. And that, that dearness, that automatically in, in, implies a quality of possessiveness. It's an owning kind of love. It's, you know, I belong to you, you belong to me, you're my child, you're my parent, you're my ajahn, you're my student, you're... Uh, you are, you're mine, you're my partner, my wife, my husband. Um, there, there's a, a, a possessiveness there. And the degree to which that, that, that bond is built around possessiveness, possessiveness around owning. And then there's also a degree of separation. I'm here, you're there, uh, <coughs> yeah. uh, I'm your, your brother, I'm your son, I'm your parent, I'm your daughter, I'm your, your teacher, I'm your student. And you are uh, the other, and so in a way, it's a kind of relationship of separateness the, with me here and and you over there, with a, with a, a separate indivi- individuals, but tied together with this with quality of of um, of affection or of interest or caring. And it's uh, this is you know, my just my reflections on this, but this seems to be what the Buddha is pointing to in these teachings, is that. As long as we uh, connect with each other or try to relate in terms of, of um, say, our community or our family or our working relationships or the, the greater world with this sense of self and other, in a way, a relationship built upon self-view, on sakaya ditti. On, as long as that's, that quality of self-view is firmly in place, then that connection is always going to bring suffering with it. There can be gratifying or pleasant aspects to it, just as... People keep saying in these teachings, oh no, our loved ones are, are the great joy in our life. Of course, they can be happy and pleasant, delightful, inspiring, uh, beautiful elements to it. But the, the degree to which that, that bond is possessive or is built on self-view, then that's the degree to which we experience pain. And we'll experience a sense of, of loss, of bereavement, a sense of... of um, being diminished, or there's a missing piece, or something has has uh, uh, made us incomplete. Uh, that as a, a painful, grieving quality there. I was noticing that just uh, now that we have all, all in the the winter season, we have all of the the benches, the the, uh, the garden benches brought into the the courtyard. You know, as you walk around the the cloister, yeah, and you can see the little brass plates on the, the back of the the benches, and you know, as you walk along, there's uh, uh, many of the names uh, of the people that the benches are dedicated for are very familiar to me. And you can see that you know, there's Peter Bryan and Nina Coltart and Catherine Hewitt and these old friends that uh, have uh, people that I've known over many years, and now they, they've died, they've passed away. And you know, if you if you attach to the the memory or the, the there's a sense of of um, bonding to the person in that the way of of, of self-view or of uh, of self and other in that way, then you feel a sense of, of grief or loss. Like, oh, Peter, yeah, he died. Oh, yeah, he's such a nice guy, such a cantankerous, <laughs> wonderful fellow in his wheelchair. And and uh, remembering those great times we had when he used to come on retreats and and uh, we have interesting. In conversations through his his letter board because he, he couldn't really speak and, and uh, 
had a difficulty communicating because of his illness and so on. Yeah, the mind can take hold of a memory or a perception and uh, conjure up that feeling of uh, of loss or sadness. Uh, or we can let's say walking past the same the, the empty the empty benches of the uh, of the dead, those who passed away, and just to let those the names or the these the, the benches that have been offered sort of in, in memory be something that that uh, gladdens the heart it rem- reminds us of the presence of these these good friends these um, people who were uh, associated with the the sangha the community lived as part of our our lives and dhamma friends for many years to have a sense of of a, a different way of of uh, appreciating their presence so that other kind of of affection or or um, or, or love is simply what we call metta or loving kindness and this is uh, when we relate to others based on on metta and uh, the other brahma viharas metta karuna mudita upeka the, the four uh, sublime abidings these four bright radiant states of mind this is defining a different way that we can relate to other beings we relate in terms of loving kindness compassion Sympathetic joy and delight in the, the good fortune of others and equanimity, and so that's how we we can connect, how we can relate with each other, not based on self-view, but based on a a, a genuine and, and unconditional loving and caring, a quality of compassion and sympathy. But it's not dependent; it's not based on self-view, and and that when we relate to each other or or think of each other. In that way, it's, it's a very different manner of of connecting, uh, a different way of relating. So, when the Buddha encourages the qualities of of caring and uh, support, say within the monastic community or within the, the greater uh, Buddhist community, it's very much this quality of of metta karuna mudita upeka, the relationship. You could say relationship based on on wholeness rather than separateness. It's ways of of relating to other beings, not based on self-view, but based on on dhamma, and that there is uh, a bonding, there is a, a connecting with other beings, but it's uh, it's based on that uh, these dimensions of of uh, say uh, and uh, of the heart, which are are independent, which are which are bright, which are not say limited, um, bound by the the Divisions created by attaching to self and other, me here, you out there, but uh, are instead the the natural disposition, or in a way the the emotional states of the of the pure heart, the, when the the pure heart uh, is directed uh, out towards other beings, and these four qualities of the Brahma Viharas, these define the ways in which the, the in a way the what Lumpur Sumedha would call mature emotions. The loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These are our emotional nature, the way that we relate to other beings when the, the heart is unclouded by greed, hatred, delusion, is unclouded by self-view, by attachment to um, to conventions and, and rituals, to sila pata paramasa, 
is unconfused by, by doubt and so forth. So in, in terms of, um, uh, of developing the qualities of uh, a genuine community, qualities of samagi, uh, harmony within the, within the group, uh, within monastic community, a single a, a group of people living together, or the guests that live here, the lay residents that live here. Um, this is very pertinent, but also in terms of the way that we relate with the the outer world, with uh, other different Buddhist groups or other uh, connected monasteries or unconnected monasteries, the greater uh, Buddhist community, also the, the the greater world in general. We can see how we uh, we can drift. We can follow habits of of uh, of defining self and other, just carried along by the the flow of of a mental habit of perception, and be quite unconsciously creating these. The sense of, of division, uh, the, the self-view, I'm here, you're out there. This is Amravati, we do things this way here, and over there, you know, Chithas, they're like that. Or at the, at the Tibetan, Tibetan centers, they do this, or amongst the Christians, they do that, or, or, uh, or whatever uh, group we're, we're looking at. We can unconsciously uh, attach a feeling of self to, to our own practice, our own style, um, and look at others and say they're different. They're you know they're they're not uh, they're not doing it right or uh, we've got it right. They've got it wrong. Or you might feel like well we've we've got it wrong and they're much it's much better over there. The way they do it is much preferable and we should do it like that. And when uh, uh, we sort of start to to consider the ways that we. Uh, perceive or, or, or judge each other to see these different ways of, of connecting as I find for myself that uh, it's uh, most helpful to understand how those different modes of relating come into being how is it that we get caught up in that uh, creation of, of, of division that, that sense of me here and you out there that, that uh, relating a relationship based on separateness and, and how do we establish a, a different way relating through loving kindness, through compassion and so forth? How do we do that? Well, in this conversation that I was having with this fellow today, I was reminded um, of an exchange that happened years and years ago that I often often recount because it had a strong effect on me at the time. And... Um, uh, this was way back in the, the early days of, uh, of Chittas. I think probably of everyone who's gathered here, I think probably only Ajahn Sundra was in the room at the time. <laughs> and this was when uh, Ajahn Chandasiri, who was um, a fairly newly ordained nun at that time, was going to go back and visit her family. It was probably around this time of year, Christmas or some, some such. And she had a particularly um, tense and difficult Relationship with her. her parents were very unhappy about being her being a nun and uh, wouldn't let her go about the house with a shaved head and she had to always wear a hat. And they were very you know, critical and uh, and upset with her her choice to to live as a, a nun and um, not I mean like not unusual for us and many of us have that that kind of difficulty. 
But anyway, she was uh, about to go off to, to Edinburgh to visit her, her family. And at one particular time, uh, we were gathered in the, the community was gathered in the reception room at, at Chithurst and she asked Lumpur, have you got, have you got any advice for relating with my family? You know, I'm going to go back and be visiting them and staying with them for a few days. Yeah. Have you got any advice as to how I should best relate to my parents? Very common, reasonable, <laughs> understandable question. But then what Lumpur said uh, really struck uh, struck home. I think it was very helpful advice for her, but also it stayed with me and many of us for a long time after. Because what he said was, the kindest thing that you can do for your parents is not to create them. The kindest thing that you can do for your parents is not to create them. Which was wasn't the answer I was expecting. <laughs> you know, it was. Uh, I was thinking. I, I've just, as he as she asked the question, you know, my my mind, I, I guess, if I can remember, came up with uh, how she could be helpful or <laughs> explain Buddhism so they'd be able to understand it in in uh, their own terms or such like. But it wasn't what he he said at all. He, his comment just came from this very clear, but uh, different. Uh, angle. It was a very clear and uh, and definitely uh, distinctly attuned to the to that that moment kind of a comment. And then uh, as he as he talked about that the and uh, and since that time since I've reflected on that teaching, I found that extraordinarily useful advice because. If I've got difficulty with you, then the tendency of my mind is to I'll think about you and I'll think about the conversations that we've had and what went wrong and how there was a there was difficulty and tension and how uh, I could have explained things better or that when you said something how I, I shouldn't have reacted so uh, defensively and I should have said this and I wish you hadn't said that and then if you'd said this then I would have said that and off it goes. There's me here, there's you there. And, and then we reiterate old conversations, we, we imagine future conversations, uh, and try to, to, to get things right in our imagination. And we don't realize that what's happening is I'm, that we, we're creating a, a, a facsimile me and a, and a facsimile you, and then trying to imagine, uh, a, a, a dialogue or a conversation, a connection between the two of us that, that feels good, that feels right, where everything is all right, everything is okay. And we're not aware of the fact that we're creating a solid sense of me and a solid sense of you. And that my projection of what you are and where you're at and why, you're, why you think the way you do and the way, the way you actually do is completely based on my own perceptions, my own suppositions, my own you know, habits of thinking. So I'm creating you, and that's what Lumpur meant in that, that statement. He, we, we're creating e each other, and then we carry around those creations, our own self-image, and then the, the image that we carry of others, and say, oh, yeah, Ajahn Gandasilo is like this, and Ajahn Jayanta is like that, and the Ajahn Kalyana is this way, and uh, Samanira Santamana is like that, yeah. Ajahn Sundra is this way, yeah. And the Garika Kiara is that way, and Sister Bodhi is the other way. 
we are we we create images and some of them can be based on reality and others can just be based on on supposition and we are uh, can be largely unconscious of the way that we we create those those forms those images uh, our in a way our preferred reality or our our uh, our designated uh, our way of designating uh, something into into being we we create a, a design and then we we bring it into being, and then we take that to be true and absolute and real. So uh, what happens with, when we do this, as I'm sure we, we've all experienced, is that when we, we get so busy with, with our um, projection of the other person, particularly if there's a, as a tense or difficult relationship or, or a, a, a one that's very, uh, um, uh, say, filled with, with uh, projection, or, or it can be very positive, like if you're infatuated with somebody, that you you get so taken up with your projected image of the other, and is so um, so worried about uh, getting it wrong and so eager to get it right, so filled with your with our own proje- projection of what we fear or what we want or what we're um, annoyed by, that when we meet that other person face to face or we talk on the phone or whatever, that we don't actually meet them at all. We just meet our own projection, and then be, meanwhile doing exactly the same thing. So. I'm sure we've all had this experience of being in a, a kind of double monologue, <laughs> where you're, you're uh, in one one respect you're sitting face to face, but in another you're not you're not communicating at all. You're not really in any kind of of uh, genuine conversation. You're it's just you're talking to your projection, and they're talking to their projection, and you're just waiting for a gap in their flow of words so you can carry on with your monologue. <laughs> So we never really meet, we never really connect, and so you can't establish any kind of real community or any kind of real communion, any genuine samagi in that way. Uh, we are, we are, are so, uh, and it can be so um, uh, ironic and painful because we can try really hard, we can spend a lot of trying, trying to get it right, really working uh, to to um, get everything and say everything in a way that's going to be acceptable, it's going to, going to be good, it's going to be something that people want to hear, or it's going to bring harmony. But in that, even though we can be very sincere in trying to get it right, we can still be just creating this me here, you there, and the, the more that we create a solid sense of, of division, the more that our, our eagerness to get it right is based on self-view, then the more inevitably it, it goes wrong, and it leads to to dukkha, misunderstanding, and negativity. So that in this respect, it's, it's what's most helpful is to develop a mindfulness of how we create each other, how we create ourselves, our own uh, image of how uh, we we see ourselves as a as a, a monk or as a nun, as a layperson, as a woman, as a man, as old, as young, as got it, someone who's got it together, or someone who's falling apart, or Someone who's extraordinarily mediocre, <laughs> somewhere in the middle. The stories we we tell about ourselves and the stories we we tell about each other. To bring our mindfulness to that, to really listen to that that habit, to get familiar with that self-image and how we we bring that into being, and we we bring it into being through habitually believing our thoughts taking our, our thoughts, our judgments, 
our perceptions to be to be absolute truths. So mindfulness is the, the key element here, mindfulness of, of our thinking habits. Just seeing what the mind when what the mind is doing. Let's say in the in the process of a, like an evening sitting or morning sitting or, or while we're going about our various kinds of work uh, in the monastery or outside with our, in our, uh, with our families or in the working world or uh, wherever it might be, to see how the mind creates those those stories, those patterns of thinking, and to say, oh look, I'm uh, I'm creating my sister, I'm creating Lomposomato, I'm creating. Uh, Ajahn Vajiro, oh look, I'm you know creating Ajahn Pasno, oh look, I'm, uh, I'm creating yeah, Anagarika Waysen, Anagarika David. The mind takes up an image and invests it with, with life. It says, you know, here's this person, and um, when we see that the mind is doing that, oh look at that, that's what happened. I'm thinking about that person, or I have to have a meeting with such and such a person, then. Looking at that happening, and to to say uh, to not create other people is not to trying to attach to an idea that that, that I don't exist or there is uh, there is no there is no real Ajahn Gandasilo, so I'll just pretend there's a, an empty mat there. <laughs> it's not some kind of false uh, sort of stupid overlay um, that we're creating, but it's more recognizing the the dependent and conditioned nature of our perceptions. That the story that we tell about ourselves, our habitual version of who and what we are, is just a convenient fiction. The the stories that we say about other people yeah, is just a convenient fiction. It's only uh, something that's designated into existence, determined into existence. There isn't anything that's solid and permanently there. So that that uh, mindfulness of how we do that, bringing the attention to that, is is the key piece. Seeing how the mind follows those patterns, and then recognizing that it is just a pattern; it's not a, a, an absolute truth. Now, when we talk about mindfulness, oftentimes that that well, there's there's different layers to the quality of of mindfulness, and uh, again, this is helpful to understand and, and to consider. Because uh, there's, uh, say, different levels of refinement in what we call mindfulness. So when uh, when we look at the the word itself, sati, sati literally, literally just means remembering. And so sati on its own is a very coarse kind of, of mindfulness. It's just a bringing attention to the present moment of what's going on. So... Uh, again, as Lumpur Sumedha would often say, like the the squirrels you know, jumping through the the branches of the trees, they're they're very mindful. They've got to be attentive to you know the the the, the spring in the branch they're jumping off and the, the 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 branch, the twig that they're they're aiming for. They've got to pay close attention. They've got to be mindful of of uh, where to jump for, how to make the leap, and where they're going to land, and how, what they've got to grab onto. Um, so then you, they can say, yeah, those squirrels are really mindful, but that, that mindfulness is not particularly liberating or liberated. You know, you can't say that, you know, a squirrel is, is, an, is a, an enlightened being just because they're, they're impressively <laughs> good jumpers through the branches. Uh, that, uh, or a, a cat 
yeah, hunting a, a a mouse in the in the undergrowth uh, in the in the hedgerow, the, the cat stalking a, a mouse or a a, a blackbird listening for a, a worm moving in the in the earth. They're they're paying close attention. They're being mindful of the different sounds or the different perceptions of movement. So that, I would say that's sati. That's certainly a, 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 there's a, an attention, a, a fixing a fixity of attention and a, a an awareness of of change and so on. But it's it's not uh, it's not in any way liberated. It's a very conditioned and dependent mindfulness. So Lumpur Cha would would compare that sati on its own to the, the hand that, that picks up an object. So that's a, the, the the mindfulness is the job of sati is to to take uh, take hold of a particular object. So the element that is more uh, uh, more refined, or what makes it uh, develop towards liberation, is sampajanya, which is which Lumpur would compare to the arm that sort of directs the, the hand to where it wants to go to. So that you know, the, it's it's the uh, the Agent that enables the the the, mind, the quality of attention to to move around to be directed. So sati sampajanya, and oftentimes when we use the word mindfulness, we're using it as a shorthand term for mindfulness and clear comprehension. So sampajanya means sati sampajanya is mindfulness of an object, but also mindfulness of the context within which it's appearing, so that. Um, this is really the uh, when we're talking about contemplation, or say watching our thoughts, or or learning to not get caught up in believing our thoughts, or, or say in this instance, learning to not create ourselves or to create other people. It's this quality of sati sampajanya. It's not just observing the thought happening, like thinking, thinking, thinking. There's a thought, but also sampajanya is ref- is uh, attending to the content of the thought, and also the uh, the context within which the thought is occurring. So, I often like to say that sati sampajanya is mindfulness not just of an object, or I'll say of being mindful of the words I'm saying, but also the the context within which uh, the, those words are being said. So, like I'm aware that it's now 9:16, and I started this dhamma talk at about uh, 8:35, so that we're um, about f- uh, 40 minutes in. <laughs> That's about how much of the talk has gone so far. Also, that this is um, yeah, the context of what I've uh, have, have said so far, and the themes that are popping up into mind of where this this talk might go. That's all part of the sampajanya aspect of sati. So it's not just paying attention to the the words that are being said, but also the uh, what's gone already, what's uh, what's um, potential in the future, uh, whether. Things are being uh, seem to be being understood. Whether I'm speaking clearly enough or loudly enough, sense of having remembering people's comments about the sound system in the temple. That even though it sounds really loud and clear to me, <laughs> but sometimes for people around the edges, it's muffled and blurry and not so clear. So it's a sense of oh, must remember not to speak too quickly. <laughs> must remember that not, English is not the first language of most of the people in the room. <laughs> The, to uh, to be attentive to those uh, contextual details, the other elements of the the context. Well, when we uh, 
use the quality of of sati sampajanya this is the the in a way the area of of spiritual faculties that we have the area of of uh, capacity that we have that we are using when we're trying to apply reflection so these other terms like dhamma vijaya the investigation of of reality dhamma vijaya one of the factors of enlightenment or yoniso manasikara that what's called wise reflection these are all uh, these are, are both qualities that depend on sati sampajanya on mindfulness clear comprehension it's that domain that area of of our spiritual faculties that we we're using we're applying mindfulness clear comprehension in that capacity to explore to investigate so what's going on here oh look at that i'm creating my mother again or, oh yeah uh, whenever i talk about my my sisters i always tend to say that or when i i think about lumpur and then I'm, the thoughts take shape in that way and uh, when i'm thinking about myself then my my pattern of thinking goes that way look at that when people ask me why did you become a monk then i tend to tell stories in this way or i tend to avoid saying that i always like to emphasize this ah oh, look at that that quality of curiosity and exploring noticing the patterns that are there this is a, a, the area of sati sampajanya mindfulness and clear comprehension there's also uh the term that lumpur coined lumpur samedo coined um intuitive awareness that's his translation for sati sampajanya for mindfulness and clear comprehension intuitive awareness so again it's alluding to this capacity to attune the attention to the present moment and also not just focusing on a single object or a single detail but the context within which uh things are occurring and also uh, he particularly used that the term intuitive because it's referring to in a sense our innate um attunement to the way things are the way things work the the uh, the patterning of of dhamma the, uh, and the way things are the patterning of nature that might not be there or apparent to our conscious mind or our our um, sort of surface level thinking but on a on a uh, a more basic level that that in us which recognizes the the orderliness or the patterning of things as we experience them where they've come from what's caused them where they're likely to go so using the word intuitive lumpur uh, this is in conversations with him as to how he came up with that that term and when he's talked about it this is the kind of thing is referred to so it's all that that domain of drawing upon our uh, intuitive sense of the way things work uh, our sense of the whole moment which is like a, a non-conceptual appreciation of of the present so when we're looking at our our flow of thoughts and the the way that um, we create ourselves create others then it we're drawing upon that faculty to to recognize well my usual way of describing things that's not the whole story how could it be the whole story uh, this is my uh, the way i prefer to to see things or i'm habituated to seeing things in this particular particularly negative way or positive way or or uh, 
um, a way based upon my own conditioning as uh, as an English speaker or as a male or as a, a monastic or uh, whatever the conditioning might be. And, and it's that which can see, oh, well, that can only be a version of reality. It can't be the whole picture because it's based on the experiences of, of a lifetime, the experiences of, of a particular set of conditioning, a language, uh, uh, the, the habits grown up from the effects of a particular society, a particular family, a particular kind of education. And in, from different points of view, from, an, uh, from being a, a woman or being a, someone who is Thai or someone who is German or someone who is uh, French or Slovenian or Slovakian, it's going to appear differently. It's going to be a different picture. It's going to be a different reality. So the more that we can tap into that quality of mindfulness and clear comprehension of intuitive awareness, then the more we can find the, the genuine roots of, of harmony, the, the more we can uh, abide in that, uh, that uncreated, unconditioned, that which is not creating self and other, that which is, uh, that which is a, uh, free from the, 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 Boundaries that the the mind creates, uh, the the false divisions of of subject and object, self and other, and that can it rather uh, appreciate, can apprehend the whole picture, can apprehend the experience of of the moment, experience of of engaging with others or living with others or, or working with others from a, a a far more unified perspective. From uh, not fixating on on uh, the habits of of, uh, of self view of seeing things in terms of me here the world out there as fixed and separate realities. So the, the third layer of mindfulness, just to, to complete that that part of it, is uh, satipanya or mindfulness conjoined with wisdom. And so this is in a, in a sense. Um, the, the 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 symbol for that Lumpur Cha would say is like this is like the body that the arm and the hand are connected to. So an arm and a hand just on its own is not very much use. They if they haven't got a body that they're joined to, they can't really do very much. They can just sort of lie there, for, yeah, and uh, be pretty lifeless. So panya or wisdom is like the the life source. That's the the body that the arm and the hand are connected to, and without that that root connection. To what's alive and uh, what is the, the sort of the power source um, of the of the whole thing, then the, those others don't really have much value or meaning. So, uh, if say seeing um, with mindfulness and clear comprehension is seeing the object in its context, then panya is applying things that an even, in a sense, an even deeper or closer quality of magnification is looking up even closer, you know, getting up even closer, looking at in even more scrupulous detail. So it's not just recognizing that this is uh, the the half moon night and we're, uh, we're in the in the the midst of a, a dhamma talk and uh, I've been talking about different ways of of connecting or relating or talking about different kinds of mindfulness. It's also recognizing. This is all an event happening in our consciousness. This, this temple, this voice, 
the feeling of the body, the feelings of heat or cold, the feelings of, of weight, sound, smell, taste, touch. These are all mental events. That, uh, the temple and this, uh, this occasion is, is experienced through the agency of our own mind. It's woven together through eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, tongue, body, and mind consciousness. I close my eyes, the temple disappears. Open my eyes, the temple reappears. You know, switch off eye consciousness, then there's no there's no thing to be seen. Open the eyes, eye consciousness comes back, the temple is back in consciousness, is apparent visually once again. So to see things with, with wisdom is to recognize that what uh, our experience of the present is constructed from is patterns of of, uh, of sense consciousness arising and passing away. And all these patterns are anicca, dukkha, anatta. They're, they are transient, they're uncertain, they are unsatisfactory. They can't be permanently pleasing and, and uh, gratifying, satisfying. And they can't be who and what we are. They have no owner. They're not intrinsically uh, a, a, a person or belonging to a person. They're not a self or anything belonging to a self. So when we see with wisdom, then we're looking really at the, at the sort of deep tissue fabric of, of experience itself, the structure of experience. And that's in a sense more demanding, to, uh, but also it's that much more liberating when we, we truly see that this is uh, everything that we call uh, our experience, the moving about in the world, doing our thing, relating to other people. This is all just... Uh, Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness arising and passing away. That's all. Yeah. When the, the heart that truly sees that, that truly knows that, in that moment there's a, a profound quality of liberation. And that in that, that true seeing with wisdom, when there's real satipanya, there, there is a, a profound sense of, of unity. It's like that everything, all the separate things, are part of a, a single uh, continuum. They're part of a, of a, a single pattern uh, known here in the present moment. They're, and that quality of vision unifies them. It's not like saying that, the, um, that they are uh, connected on some sort of etheric level, but far more that just that simple recognition that it all happens here, Everything is known here. It all occurs within the space of this awareness. And it has these intrinsic uh, qualities of anicca, dukkha, anatta. These, these patterns, these uh, fundamental qualities of, of, of all experience, of all things. They're here. That's, that's, that's uh, the, the nature of all of them. So that that uh, quality of unity that a unifying vision and what helps us to unify with other people is to recognize, oh yeah, the perceptions of self, the perceptions of other, they all happen here. What, the, the part of the universe that's called me, the part of the universe that's called you, it all happens in the same place. It's all, it's all known in the same place. And when that's actualized, and, when, and I can say the words and we can hear that and think, oh yeah, that's right, that makes sense. Or you might think, oh, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I've seen things like that. 
But in that moment when there's a, a genuine awakening to that, when there, there's a recognition that, oh yeah, the world happens in this mind. The world is known through this mind. It all happens here. It's known here in this moment. In that, that there's a, a letting go of the, the habitual perceptions, the habitual ways of seeing. And in that moment, there's seeing with the eye of Dhamma. There's seeing that, yeah, this is, uh, of course, how could it be otherwise? There's a, a recognition that, that uh, experience and the way things are is, uh, is apparent here and now. It's timeless. It's seen by, uh, by this mind. Right? It's known in this awareness here. And when there's a, a genuine change of vision, when the heart actually knows that directly, then there's a, the, the quality of, of uh, the Dhamma is, is recognized. There's a quality of, of wholeness, a quality of, of completeness, of, of simplicity. Nothing is missing. Even though what we might know in that moment is a, a painful feeling or it might even be a feeling of sadness or, or grief, the, the the very fact that it's known, oh, this is a, a perception of, of sadness, this is a, a cold sensation, this is a, a bitter taste, that the the quality of that as part of of the natural order, part of the patterns of, of consciousness that, uh, that weave together to be formed into this experience of the present, that, uh, the degree to which that is is simply known is recognized, oh, this is, this is just patterns of nature coming and going, changing. The degree to which that's truly known through the, through the heart is the degree to which the heart is liberated. It's a, you know, a simple, very, very simple relationship. But uh, the greater the degree of non-identification and letting go, the greater the degree of, of wholeness, of the quality of, of uh, completeness and uh, and unity, that uh, that integrated quality of Dhamma is recognized. The degree to which there is attachment or uh, buying into habits of self-view, then the more solid, there's me here and, you, and the world out there, and this is good and that's bad and I like this and I don't like that. And the the divisive, discriminative quality of, of consciousness is being brought into that's being. The degree to which that's attached to and invested with with uh, a false solidity, is the degree to which we'll experience alienation and division and, and uh, a sense of, of separateness or, or uh, alienation. So in this, um, I find this uh, such a, a helpful set of principles to use in terms of how to, to cultivate the quality of of a community consciousness, a quality of samagi, of a genuine harmony between ourselves and others, is just to notice every time the mind starts talking about them or us, just to flag that, to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, where are they? Where, where am I? Where is the, the us that's here? Where is that? Who is that? Who says that's the whole story? When the mind says, well, you know, he's like this or she's like that or I really miss him or, you know, I want to be with her, or, or um, I don't like the way he does this, or um, I'm really excited about the way you know, she does that. Just to, to notice every time the mind tries to create a person or a group of people, to create this, uh, this place or that place, this monastery or that monastery, this, 
this political party or that political party or this uh, family member or, or that one, just to simply flag that, to say, look at that, your mind is creating self and other. This is the habit of buying into self-view. Look at that. And the mind that notices it and looks at, looks at that, can see that, is that is not entangled. That, uh, that which is aware of it is not entangled in it. So to just simply notice that, to bring mindfulness to that habit, and you, you can't just will the habit away by yeah, snapping the fingers and, and uh, deciding not to be that way. But just to, to notice the habit. Oh, look at that. I'm creating yeah, this person. I'm creating that person. I'm creating myself. I'm creating this friendship between us or this conflict between us. Look at that. Just developing that quality of looking, of feeling it out and seeing... That's not the whole story. Look at that, uh, how strong that, that habit is. And then in seeing that, looking at the strength of the habit and letting yourself feel and know the burdensome nature of that. And then just relaxing the heart, relaxing the attitude towards it. Just remember, this is just a story. This is just a, a habit of perception. It's not the whole thing. Letting the, the heart relax in relationship to that. And then just seeing how much the world changes, how how different it is when we drop the habits of self-view of me in here and, and you out there, this uh, us here and them there, to just loosen that, relax that. And then mysteriously enough, when you when you let go of each other, when you stop creating the other, you find yourself much more able to get along easily and harmoniously. <laughs> when you meet. When the, the less that I create you uh, in my thoughts or my expectations, when we meet, we actually meet. I'm not just talking to my projection or my expectations. I'm not just trying to present a particular image, but I can really uh, meet uh, meet you the way you are, and uh, and uh, can be open to to uh, to others. We can be open to each other in a, in a whole uh, different way and through a much more uh, peaceful and relaxed and easeful and genuine way where we're relating through metta, karuna, mudita, upeka we're relating through uh, uh, a seeing with the eye of Dhamma rather than relating through habits of self-view and seeing through the eyes of, of me and mine self and another and when we do that then it's a, it's a blessing for ourselves it's a kindness to ourselves. It's also a great kindness to others. That's why when Lumpur said, the kindest thing you can do for your parents is not to create them. <laughs> it's a great kindness to not be plastering our opinions and rejections on each other. And when we, we do that, it's a, we are unburdened in ourselves. And also we find that people um, are much happier to be around us. <laughs> We're much easier to be with, much more delightful to, to be... Uh, in others' company. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening. Please take whatever is useful. <laughs>